0: Well you can open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter one this morning, Second Peter chapter one. And seemingly every ancient civilization has their own mythology. You probably remember mythology from high school. These fantastical stories of how the world came to be, how humans came to be, how life as we know it came to be. Many cultures explain their history, rituals politics even through mythology and just about every ancient civilization has their own mythology from the Inca to the Native Americans to the Chinese the Indians but I think us from the western world are most familiar with Greek mythology. Greek mythology is known for its tales of gods and man although when you see how they depict their gods they're remarkably similar to humans. They really have, they have some power, some knowledge, but they're really flawed and they're oftentimes controlled by their vices. The Greeks, as with many other ancient civilization, civilizations, used mythology to explain what they thought was the origin of the world. To them, according to them, the world started with chaos, which was nothingness, this void of existence. And out of chaos sprang Gaia, which is the earth. And the earth then gave birth to the sky, which they called Uranus. And then the earth and the sky together gave birth to the first Titans, six males and six females. One of the Titans was named Kronos. And he overthrew his father, the sky, and he became ruler of the Titans. But history or mythology, I guess you could say, would repeat itself Cronus always feared that he would have a son who would overthrow him just like he did his father. And so every time his wife gave birth, he would snatch the child and swallow it whole. His wife, though, one time gave birth to a son. And to trick her husband, Cronus, she wrapped uh, a stone in a baby's blanket and hid her son away. And Cronus fell for it and he swallowed the stone whole. The boy was saved, and his name was Zeus. Zeus then, when fully grown, he returned to his father. He gave his father a poison that caused him to to vomit, and his father threw up all of his other children, all alive and well, as well as the stone. Zeus then challenged Kronos to war, and he won dominion over the gods, and he imprisoned Kronos and the other titans in Tartarus forever. And so Zeus then became the main god Thereafter, But that being said, Zeus, it's not like he's a perfect deity. He himself has many weaknesses, flaws, and imperfections. That's just how they envision their gods. And not only did the Greeks use mythology to explain their origins, but they also used mythology to record their history. I don't know if you remember from high school, but I read the Iliad and the Odyssey, two of Homer's epic poems. And we don't know for sure, but it's likely that the Trojan War at some point, was a real conflict. But when Homer writes about it, he infuses this history with the supernatural. It's not just a recording of a battle between the Trojans and the Achaeans. It's really this battle between the gods. The gods are involved, pulling strings behind the scenes and so forth. Such mythology includes tales of demigods, which are humans with one godparent and one human parent. And maybe the most famous of these is Achilles. Achilles' mother was a goddess named Thetis who, she tried to make her son immortal by dipping him in the river Styx, but one part of his body was was left vulnerable, and that was the part on which she held on to while dipping him in the river, which was his heel. Achilles became the hero in the Iliad and he was invincible. Nobody could harm him or hurt him. He couldn't be killed until at last, though, he was struck in the heel with an arrow and died. And it is from this mythology, even today, that we get the terms Achilles heel and Achilles tendon come straight out of that. And many aspects of ancient mythology still pervade our society today, but we don't really take them seriously. We think there's nothing to them. They're just old stories that aren't true and And that's that. Now, here's a question for you. When it comes to the Bible, how do you know that it's not just another myth? That's what some people say, those who are opposed to Christianity, opposed to God, that the Bible is just another ancient mythology, nothing more. We would, of course, contend with this. We would say there is one true God. He's not like these other false, very human-like gods. He is much different. He has revealed himself to mankind, and that revelation is found in the Bible. If God does exist and he has revealed himself, then one of these ancient writings is true, and we would contend with all of our might that that is indeed the Bible. But how do you know this? How do you know that the Bible is true? That's a good question. It's an important question, and it's a question we're going to be peering into from 2 Peter, as Peter addresses this issue in his letter. So I think you've already turned to 2 Peter. We're back, been away for a couple weeks, but we're back in 2 Peter this morning. We just recently began going through this short but significant letter, and we're near the end of chapter 1. And before we get into it, I want to remind you and fill you in on some of the background that's going on here. God has spoken to his people. He has revealed himself and his will to mankind. And God has done this throughout human history through human instruments. In the Old Testament, God raised up prophets to be his voice to the people. And in the New Testament, God has raised up new prophets as well as men called apostles to to be his voice, to, to give forth his word to the people, to communicate his word again. These apostles and prophets are the mouthpieces of God for the church. They're the conduit through which God's revelation for the churches flows. Now, Peter knows this. He writes to the churches scattered abroad as an apostle, knowing that God is using him to relay God's will for the church. And because of this, the people, the believers that he's writing to, they really should listen to him. They should heed the words of the apostles and prophets as God's words, not because they're so smart or wise or special, but because God has chosen them to communicate his revelation for the church. It was very clear early on after Christ that God was speaking again and adding to Scripture. The Old Testament was complete, but now a New Testament was being recorded, detailing a new covenant. The Gospels... And the words of Jesus were immediately received as authoritative. For example, Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18, he quotes the Old Testament and the words of Jesus side by side and calls them both scripture. In addition, the writings of the apostles were received as authoritative. In fact, just jump ahead, turn the page to 2 Peter chapter 3. And look at what Peter himself says of the Apostle Paul. And by the time Peter writes 2 Peter, Paul has already written most of his letters. And apart from the four Gospels and Acts, Paul's letters make up most of the New Testament. But already, Peter himself identifies the letters of Paul, not as you know, historical documents or just writings, but as Scripture Peter knew that as an apostle, God was using Paul as well as a mouthpiece to reveal God's will for the churches. Look at this. 2 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 15. He says, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Notice this wasn't his wisdom, Paul. This wisdom was given to him. By God. Verse 16, he says, As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, look at this, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. When Peter refers to the rest of the scriptures here, he's referring to the Old Testament. And this is extremely significant because he is putting on par with scripture the letters of Paul. And Paul is still alive at this point. Indeed, in the era of Christ, God spoke through Christ. Christ was God's revelation to mankind. In the era just after Christ, God spoke through his apostles and prophets, to reveal his word written down for the churches. Now, we mentioned apostle a lot. What exactly is an apostle? The word apostle means messenger, envoy, representative. The apostles, they were a small group of men. We've got the original 11 disciples, plus a replacement for Judas, plus Paul and a few others. And they were appointed by Jesus himself to be his messengers or representatives to the church. They were God's voice for the church. And one of the things that qualified them to be Christ's special representatives was the fact that they were all eyewitnesses of Christ, specifically his resurrection. They all saw with their eyes the risen Christ. This is one of the reasons the early church, and even us today, accept the New Testament as coming with God's full authority. We asked earlier, why believe the Bible? There are, after all, many other writings out there. But Christians from the very beginning after Christ have accepted these writings because they carry with them apostolic authority, which is to say, God's authority. Jesus himself never wrote anything down, but those immediately surrounding him did. And the New Testament comes to us from them. It has been amazingly preserved and passed down through the ages. And so even we today can still accept with full confidence as God's voice for the church. Now, there is, to be sure, plenty more to say about the authority and the reliability of Scripture as God's word. We're going to look at some more of that next week but now i want to get us a little bit closer to our passage from second peter for this morning you know peter as he's penning this letter he understood his role and he understood the role of his writings he understood that even as he wrote god was using him to communicate his will for the church but peter also knew that his end was near he knew that sooner rather than later, he would be packing up his, his earthly tent, his body, so to speak, and moving on to the next life to be with the Lord. This is what we studied last time in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. He knew he was going to die soon. This wasn't a huge problem for Peter, though, because he longed to be with his Lord. But there was another problem. See, the apostles were a dying breed. They were going extinct They were dying out. It was only a matter of time before the last of the apostles was gone, and soon the voice of the apostles and prophets would be gone from the church. And this was concerning to Peter, for other voices were rising up, the voices of false teachers. As the apostles went silent through death, other voices were ready in the shadows to fill that void, and to make themselves heard. And if the churches listened to them, it would spell disaster because these false teachers were putting forth false doctrine, false truth, false motives, a false gospel. And it is because of these other voices that Peter writes Second Peter. As he nears death, he wants to leave behind one more written testimony so that the churches will be able to listen to his voice even after he's gone. By writing this down, he is enabling the churches to hear God's message continually, to be forever reminded of God's will and to to be blessed as they stay close to it. Even as the voices of the false teachers grow louder, and they would, the church can stay on track by sticking close to the apostolic testimony written down. This is the main concern behind Second Peter. He writes to let the churches know to be on guard, to stick to what they know. The churches need to cling to the truth of the gospel. And they need to cling to the words handed down by whom? By the apostles and the prophets. In fact, since it's so close, again, fast forward to chapter 3 and look at how he emphasizes the ending of his letter. Chapter 3, verse 2. As he comes to a close, he says, Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And in the last two verses of the chapter of the book, how he ends the letter, he says, verse 17, in chapter 3. You, therefore... Beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In putting things roughly, his basic message is that the churches need to listen to him. He's not trying to be self-serving. It's just that these false teachers, they're not speaking from God. They did not know Christ. They did not see the risen Christ. They've not been commissioned by Christ to speak. And if the churches want to stay on track, they need to heed and stick close to the apostolic testimony. It's not just some tradition. These are the men who were with Christ and were chosen by him to speak. This is how Peter ends his letter and largely how he begins his letter. You can flip back to chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, as he enters the main portion of his letter, he begins with a defense of his voice. Before he speaks against the false teachers, he's going to do that in chapter 2. It's really devoted to speaking against the false teachers. But before that, he's going to answer the question, why should the churches listen to him? Why should they take his word in the first place? And in verses 16 through 21, he answers this question, giving several reasons for his credibility. This morning, we're going to look at the first half of his answer, found in verses 16 through 18. So let's read together our passage for this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. <clears throat> Verse 16. He says, For we did not follow... Cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. From this passage, I want us to find two reasons why you should accept the testimony of Scripture as God's truth. Two reasons why you should accept the testimony of Scripture as God's truth. And to be sure, there are many more reasons than this. We'll talk about those next week. But from here, we have, from Peter himself, two reasons why why you should listen to his voice. And by extension, the voice of all the apostles. As men speaking from God. And the first reason is this. Scripture comes from eyewitnesses. Number one, scripture comes from eyewitnesses. Look at verse 16. He says again, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his Majesty. In this verse, Peter is referring to some of the apostles' teaching. His main statement comes in the middle of verse 16, where he says, We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now first, notice the switch to third person. Before, he was writing in the first person, like in verse 15. I will be diligent to call these things to mind. But now he switches to, to the third person, to we. Now, who's the we? It's the apostles. He is referencing the testimony of the apostles. And specifically, Peter is referencing the apostles' testimony concerning Christ. It is from the apostolic testimony that we learn about Christ's deity, his incarnation, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and then his return. And specifically, Peter is talking about here, the return of Christ. He's referencing the return of Christ, the second coming. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that's what he's talking about? Well, it's evident from the words that he uses. He says, the apostles made known what? The power and coming of Jesus. This word for coming in the Greek is parousia. And that word is never used of Christ's first coming, but always his second coming. This word became a technical term before the return of Christ. It was originally used of an official state visit of a king. For example, if the emperor left Rome and he went to visit another territory, the people there would celebrate his royal perusia, his royal coming. The king has come. And all the more so, Jesus will return to earth as divine king. And the future will be his perusia, his coming, his return. The Bible has plenty to say about the return of Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, verse 27, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Paul had a ton to say to the Thessalonians about the return of Christ. And James in James 5, 7 says, Be patient, brethren, until the coming, the parousia of the Lord. Just about every Author, every book in Scripture mentions this coming, in the New Testament at least. This return of Jesus will be in triumph and power. In the incarnation, surely Jesus as God possessed all power, but that power was veiled in his humility. But his second coming will be marked by a clear demonstration of his divine power. The return of Christ everywhere is seen. As an event of power. Matthew 24 verse 30 says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And we won't do this now for the sake of time. But you just read Revelation 19 on your own. And see the return of Christ to earth depicted He comes to judge and to slaughter the remaining armies of the earth arrayed against him. And they're done away with just like that. It's a coming of power. This will be the return of Christ to judge those who have rejected him, who have instead chosen to live in their rebellion and the lust of their flesh. But also he comes to rescue. He comes to rescue and save those who have believed in him. Granting them blessing and eternal life. From Peter's words in the context, you can tell that these false teachers were denying the reality of Christ's return in power to judge. They were denying the second coming. They rejected the return of Jesus to judge the world. And this sprang out of a desire to avoid personal responsibility and accountability before God for how they lived You know, these false teachers, they were known for immoral living. And we'll find that out in chapter 2. And they wanted to keep living in the lusts of their flesh. And this whole idea of Jesus returning to earth to judge and hold people accountable for living that way didn't really sit well with their lifestyle. So instead of repenting and actually following Christ, they just denied his second coming and the judgment altogether. It had been, after all, according to them, it had been 30 years since Jesus had left. The apostles, they were starting to die out, and Christ still hadn't come back. So these false teachers took to mockery to justify their immoral lives. Let me make you turn to Second Peter chapter 3 one more time. Turn the page again to chapter 3. He will return to this issue of the return of Christ in chapter 3. And look at what he says in verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come after their mocking, following after their own lusts, verse 4, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? It's parousia, Christ. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. We'll look at his response later when we get to chapter 3, but he he's saying in advance to expect this type of mockery. Again, their, their denial of the return of Christ was really driven by their lusts, their desire to live an immoral lifestyle. But there are even higher stakes here regarding these false teachers. For... A denial of Christ's return is a denial of his kingship. You're saying that he is not king of kings. You are saying that he is not Lord of the universe. And that's not the Jesus that Peter knew. And Peter knew him. These false teachers did not. And today things aren't much different. Just like Peter predicted, people have mocked the second coming forever. And will continue to do so until that day. It's really no surprise, though. People people don't want to believe in a day, a day of the Lord, a judgment day, when all will be held accountable for how they chose to live and for their rejection of God and Christ. They don't like that idea, so they reject the notion of, of a future judgment initiated by the return of Christ. And such a denial happened in Peter's day, happens in our day as well. But denying it doesn't change reality. That's like a person falling from a plane who convinces himself that he's not going to hit the ground. He's up high, all he can see is the clouds, but he tells himself that there is no ground beneath the clouds. He convinces himself that he'll just safely land in the clouds and he'll be okay. But tell yourself what you want. You're going to hit the ground. And likewise, though unbelievers to maintain a guilt-free conscience have to deny the final judgment, they are going to hit the ground. Let's keep your finger in Second Peter and, and just turn back to Second Thessalonians chapter one. Let's just back a little ways. Second Thessalonians chapter one, and let me show you a very unpopular passage in the Bible. Second Thessalonians chapter one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verse 6. He says, Paul writing, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. This is talking about the second coming. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed For our testimony to you was believed. And there's another note of this apostolic testimony. But look, this passage, this message is not popular. The world hates this this passage, this message of judgment. But believe it or not, this message is offered in love because you don't have to be judged, Christ will come to judge. But he came first to save and you can be saved from the day of wrath and the judgment to come. It's the greatest show of love you've ever known and mercy and grace. That God sent Christ first in humility to die on the cross and to pay the penalty for your sins. That you might escape that certain future judgment that's coming for all of you except those in Christ. If you would just turn to him, to believe in him, to turn away from your sinful lifestyle, like these false teachers, turning away from your lusts instead and clinging to Christ. When he comes, you'll be rescued by him. You will rejoice at that day, not tremble at that day. It's a joy. You get the joy of looking forward to the end, like Peter wanting to be with his Lord again. This is Peter's testimony as well that Christ is returning. You can turn back to 2 Peter now. He has testified of Christ's life, death, resurrection, return. And like Paul said, like Peter said, that testimony is to be believed. And your life, your eternal life is at stake. So back to verse 16 of 2 Peter 1. This is his main statement that he and the apostles have made known the power in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That testimony is to be be believed. And to support this now, to give reason why you should believe him, Peter adds a negative and a positive statement. Now, why should you heed his testimony? Well, first, negatively, he says, at the beginning of verse 16, for We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word for tales or fables in your Bible is the Greek word muthos, which is the word for myth. This testimony concerning Jesus as no myth is what he's saying. This is not some man-made legend that he created for his own agenda. This is not a cleverly devised story birthed out of dupery and deception. Indeed, just the opposite was the case. The false teachers, they had no objective source behind their their testimony. They they were making things up. And it was for their own gain. They wanted to get rich off of preaching and getting followers. It is not the false teachers but the apostles, the actual disciples of Jesus who were the privileged ones who are granted access to God's truth. Remember what Jesus told them. He said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. These were the ones who were given that access, and they're telling us. So no, negatively, Peter's testimony is no mere myth, but positively, the end of verse 16, He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And this is the first main reason why you should accept this testimony as God's truth. It comes from eyewitnesses. This is coming from eyewitnesses. It's only from Peter and the apostles that we receive firsthand eyewitnesses accounts of Jesus. They saw Jesus with their own eyes. They beheld his majesty. They bore witness to his divine nature. And they were commissioned by him to tell of him and his return. Now, they're the ones to listen to because they, they saw it all. This word for eyewitness speaks of someone who has been initiated into an inner circle. Someone who's on the inside. The false teachers, they were the ones on the outside looking in. They never saw the risen Christ. They did not know him. They were never commissioned by him. God did not reveal Jesus to them. They were driven by false motives, characterized by immoral lives, and their words were not to be trusted. Instead, he says, trust the eyewitnesses. These are the ones who saw Christ and testify of him. There really are many reasons why we today still uphold the Bible as God's truth. There are are many reasons. But one reason, a powerful reason pertaining especially to the New Testament, is that this record comes down to us from eyewitnesses, from those who walked and talked and spoke with the Savior himself. If you're going to believe anyone, believe those who were there, whom God has inspired, as we'll learn next week, to reveal this to you. The first reason to accept scripture as God's truth, it comes from eyewitnesses. Reason number two now. The second reason. First, scripture comes from eyewitnesses. Second, scripture comes from ear witnesses. Scripture comes from ear witnesses. Verses seventeen and eighteen. And no, that's not a real word, by the way, but You know what it means. Scripture comes from ear witnesses. Look at verse 17. He says, For when when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now here, Peter is referring back to some incident, some event in the life of Christ. And it's, it's pretty obvious what he's talking about. He's referring to the transfiguration. You remember that? You know what that is? One, one afternoon or one evening, Jesus took with him three disciples at his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And he took them up on a high mountain. And it says he was transfigured before them. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white, whiter than snow. Elijah appeared. Moses appeared. They spoke with Jesus, and then the cloud showed up. This was no ordinary cloud. This was God's presence himself, his special presence, as seen often in the Old Testament, that Shekinah glory cloud. God showed up, resting on the mountain with Jesus and the disciples. And God spoke from the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard the voice, they they fell to the ground, terrified. They had just heard God speak and lived. And Jesus came over to them. he, He lifted them up. And when they raised their faces, Moses, Elijah, and the cloud were gone. And they were back to normal. They told no one of this very special event until after the resurrection. They kept it to themselves. Now you can read this for yourself, of course. It's found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew 17, Luke 9, Mark 9. But what is the significance of this event? Do you know? What's the significance of that? And why is Peter bringing this up some 30 years later in 2 Peter? Now, there's a lot going on with the transfiguration, but let me tell you what Peter is after here. Look at verse 17 again. He says in verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, stop there. Peter understood, and he's now relating the significance of the transfiguration. And it has to do with God himself validating Jesus as the divine messianic king. You catch that? In the transfiguration, God is validating Jesus as the divine messianic king. You may not know this, but the transfiguration has more to do with the returning Christ than the risen Christ. Most people think of the transfiguration as a preview of the resurrection of Jesus, but it's more so a preview of the returning Jesus. This is a foretaste of the future coming, exaltation, and enthronement of Jesus as king overall. This is a foretaste of the parousia, the coming. Remember, in all three Gospels, The transfiguration comes just days after Jesus told the disciples this. He said to them, There are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He didn't say until they see the risen Son of Man, although that's true. He said until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And this prophetic word was fulfilled a few days after when Peter, James, and John went up on that mountain. They were given a taste of King Jesus as he will return in his kingdom. And they weren't making this up. This is not their testimony. This is God's testimony. After Jesus was transformed into glory, God himself gave glory and honor, not to Moses, not to Elijah, but to Jesus, his son, because he alone is the one worthy to receive glory and honor and power. God, the majestic glory himself, spoke saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And by saying this, actually God was authenticating and validating Jesus as the divine messianic king. And we say that because God himself, you could say, is quoting himself from the Old Testament. He's referring back to Psalm chapter 2, a messianic psalm where God's anointed one is also seen as God's king. Let me read for you a passage from Psalm 2. This is God himself speaking. A messianic psalm. Psalm 2, verse 6. God says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7. I will surely declare... I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, as the very ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Verse 12. He says, Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is God speaking about Christ, the Son, saying do, do homage to, not to God, to him, the Son, because he's coming in wrath, but how blessed are those who take refuge in him. In the Old Testament, in several places, look forward to... The anointed one, the Christ, who would come as a savior, as servant, and as king. He would rule the nations, literally. And the significance of the transfiguration is that God himself, he's declaring that Jesus is that king. That's the significance of the transfiguration. When God speaks, he is declaring Jesus is that king from the Old Testament. He is the one who will come in power in his kingdom. He is the one who will rule over all, who will judge all, who will return. This is not coming from Peter. This is not Peter's words. These are God's words. And never has Peter argued that the churches should listen to him because he's so special or so wise. Rather, he was simply chosen and privileged by God to hear from God and to communicate the words of God. And on this occasion, Peter knows because he was there. Look at verse 18, back in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Verse 18. After this, he says, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He was an eyewitness of the transfiguration. And as the cloud of God's glory showed up and the divine voice spoke, Peter, his face hit the ground, but he heard. He became an ear witness as well. He heard God speak. And this was a real audible voice, not just an intuition. He knew, he heard, because he was there. I mean, talk about authority. Why should you listen to Peter, not these other voices, these other teachers? Because he was there, he heard God speak, he was an ear witness. None of this comes as a second-hand accounting, and that is so important. The false teachers are the ones speaking with no connection to God, to Christ. They never knew him. They never walked with him. Rather, from Peter and the apostles, you are getting God's word straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. The false teachers had classified the apostles' teaching of of Christ's royal return as a mere myth, but this was no myth. God himself declared it to be true, and the apostles are simply passing that along to the churches to be believed. Again, this is not the only reason why you should accept Scripture as God's truth, but it is a significant one, a unique one, Scripture comes to us from eyewitnesses and earwitnesses. Now, as we bring this to an end, to be sure that there is a secondary lesson here from our text regarding the return of Christ. Do you know that Jesus is returning? Do you believe that he's returning? Are you prepared for that return? And you must be lest you be get, lest you be caught off guard. Jesus is the risen Lord. He is the coming king. He will come to judge, but he will also come to rescue. You don't have to be a part of that judgment. If you turn to him and believe in him, follow him as your your God, your Savior, your king, and then you will be saved by him. In the meantime, live holy lives that's a lesson peter will make explicit in chapter three remember when he talks again about the return of christ he says basically since jesus is returning as king what type of people ought you to be in godliness and holy conduct he says and the the answer is you should be very godly and very holy in the meantime So live in great holiness and godliness under the king who died to save you and who will return for you. But really, the primary takeaway from our text this morning has to do with scripture. It's the written revelation carrying with it apostolic authority. There are many writings out there, many myths, but there are no writings like the Bible And the reasons abound, but for one, you should have great confidence in the Bible as the word of God because these writings come from people who were there. These men walked with Jesus. They they talked with him. They saw him. They they touched him. They heard him, and they were chosen by him to tell us about him. And look, you're, you're free to believe what you want, but I'm going to believe the ones who were there. As you leave here this morning... Leave with a greater confidence in the word of God. You know, by now, obviously, the apostles are gone. They died out a long time ago. And God's voice through them is over. But God still speaks through the written word, the words written down. And so I urge you to cherish scripture, trust it know it, rely on it, live by it, and you will be secure, as Peter ends his letter, in the true knowledge of Christ, our Savior and our King who is returning. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord Jesus, we, we pray to you and honor you now. You are the one worthy to receive glory and honor and power you are the, the Savior who lived and died for us. And you are the King who is returning, already in glory, already in power, but coming to make your power known to all. And we pray, come, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, we long for that return. And may be, may we all be ready for it, living lives in holy conduct and fear. And we thank you, Lord, also for for your revelation written down. We accept. In trust and faith, your word coming to us through these men who were not special, they were just chosen by you to to be the mouthpieces for the church. We worship you, we follow you, we thank you for them though for using them that we might know you today. This is all part of your your good and perfect plan. We thank you for that. may we leave here with more confidence in scripture unlike any other coming from these eyewitnesses, these ear witnesses, those who are with the Savior. may we take comfort in that. But overall, Lord, we look forward to the time when we will be eyewitnesses of Christ, when we will be earwitnesses ourselves, when we get to behold him, and when we go to be with him or when he returns. We thank you for these truths, and give us grace as we go from here. In your name we pray. Amen.